please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And while you're turning there, I just want to say I missed you all while I was gone. I rejoiced to hear on the podcast that you guys were served really faithfully in God's Word by Paul Miller and by Andrew Foray. Uh, it is good to be back with you all. Let me read from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and then I'll pray once more. Beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Please pray with me once more. Father, we need your help as we come to your word. Would your Holy Spirit give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe and rejoice in what we see about Christ, to submit to him, to trust him, to fear him, to love him. Help me as I preach. Help us as we listen. 
We ask all this for the glory of your great name, through Christ. Amen. Snakes, spiders, speaking in public, heights, failure, rejection, not having enough money, letting someone else down, being alone, cockroaches, losing someone you love, death. What are you afraid of? On one level, fear impacts our lives every day. Fear shapes our personalities. It lurks in the background of our minds in the form of anxiety. Fear can drive us to achieve. Fear makes us nice. Fear makes some aggressive. Fear keeps some following the rules. Fear impacts our behaviors every day, most often on the level of our subconscious. Most of the time, our fears remain hidden. But there are those moments when fears burst out of hiding right into the open, when fear roars into our consciousness, when life feels in danger, when the moment of rejection approaches, when the cockroach emerges from under the couch, when all eyes are on us, when failure is imminent, when we come face to face with suffering or death in our own lives or the lives of those we love, in those moments, fear leaps out of hiding. It explodes into our minds. It grips us. It electrifies us. It leaves us undone as we swerve out of control. What do you need when you are afraid? What do you need when you are afraid? Our sermon text this morning concludes a section in the Gospel of Mark uh, which speaks directly to the subject of our fears. Uh, this morning we're looking actually at the third and fourth within a group of four miracle stories which Jesus performs beside the Sea of Galilee recorded for us in Mark chapters 4 and 5. So the first and second of these miracles we looked at several weeks ago, last time we were together in Mark's Gospel so more than most other stories in Mark's gospel, these four miracle stories in Mark 4 and 5 uh, describe really scary situations. So first, at the end of Mark chapter 4, uh, Mark records the miraculous calming of the storm at sea. Remember, that's a storm that's so scary that these experienced fishermen in the boat with Jesus think they're going to die. That's the first miracle story about fear. The second miracle story, remember, in the first half of chapter 5, is about a terrifying, tomb-dwelling, chain-ripping demon guy, right? He's straight out of a horror movie. It's the second scary miracle in this set of four. The third and fourth miracles are recorded in the passage I've just read for us, and they're less sensational than the first two, but in some ways they're even scarier. The first I'm sorry, the third miracle is about a woman suffering from a painful, isolating, incurable illness. 
If you've ever had a brush with terrible illness, you know that there are few things scarier than something wrong with your body that you can't fix. The fourth and final miracle story here is about death. Even more frighteningly, it's about the death of someone's beloved child. I can't imagine anything scarier to a parent. Mark very intentionally crafts these four miracle stories in Mark 4 and 5 by the Sea of Galilee in order to speak to the subject of our fears. Mark thinks that what fearful people living in a scary world need most is a bigger, clearer picture of Jesus. So in our time together this morning, I want us to consider four characteristics of the Lord Jesus in our passage. And as we note each of these four characteristics of Jesus, uh, I want us to consider what they have to do with our fears. And that'll serve as our outline this morning. So first, first characteristic of Jesus that we need to note in this passage. In this passage, we see a compassionate Jesus. In this passage, we see a compassionate Jesus. Our passage picks up as Jesus is on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, having arrived in a boat, uh, likely in Capernaum. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, Mark says, a great crowd gathered about him. It's a familiar scene, right? Jesus by the sea, surrounded by a great crowd. We've seen that before. It's business as usual until Jesus is interrupted by one of the rulers of the local synagogue, a man named Jairus. It's very likely that Jairus is risking a lot by coming to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is very popular with the common people, but not so much with the religious leaders. Last time Jesus was in a synagogue, remember the story ended with the synagogue leaders plotting to kill Jesus. So it's not very good for Jairus' popularity that he's coming to Jesus for help. But Jairus is desperately scared. And in his desperate fear, Jairus is driven to the only one who's able to help him. And brothers and sisters, as an aside, praise God for the scary things in our lives that drive us to Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 22 that Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus begs Jesus to come with him, and Jesus agrees. There in verse 24, we read that as Jesus begins the journey to Jairus' home, that the crowd comes with Jesus. They follow along. Mark says that as Jesus travels, the great crowd thronged about him. The term connotes bumping and jostling. But there's one touch, one bump in this crowd that's different than all the others. The trip to Jairus' house gets interrupted by another character that we meet there in verses 25 and 26. There in those verses, Mark introduces us to a poor, suffering woman. Mark says that this woman has had a menstrual bleeding disorder for 12 years. Can you imagine 12 years of painful, deeply inconvenient, non-stop bleeding? 
If you've ever suffered from chronic pain, you know that it can absolutely grind you down. Now, what's more, in those days, menstrual bleeding, according to the law of Moses, would have made this woman ceremonially unclean. You know what that means? It means that no one could touch this woman without becoming unclean themselves. This woman would have been unable to have children. She would have been largely excluded from society. Mark writes that this woman had sought help from doctor after doctor, all to no avail. Look at the intensifying words that Mark uses there in verse 26. Look at the strength of these words. She had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. Painful treatment after painful treatment had bankrupted this poor woman. Right? Not to mention the suffering of having your hopes raised that maybe this time the treatment will work. And then it doesn't. Again and again and again and again. Friends, I wonder whether we recognize in Mark's description of this woman some of our own fears when it comes to our health. When our bodies start to fray, isn't this what we fear? Right? I'm afraid that my body will continue to hurt and hurt and hurt, and hurt. I'm afraid that what I have is incurable. I'm afraid that I will run out of money trying to treat this. I'm afraid that my life will be ruined by this disease. Do you know any of those fears? In this woman's case, these weren't just distant possibilities. These had become her reality. But there in verse 27... We read that she had heard the reports about Jesus. And having heard, she dared to hope that this man Jesus could do more for her than all the money and all the doctors in the world. In verse 28, we read about this woman's remarkable faith. She says to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This woman makes her way through the crowd, probably sneaking as she does. She's likely afraid of being caught and chastised for making other people clean by bumping into them in this crowd. The woman sneaks up behind Jesus and silently, indiscreetly, she reaches out her hand and touches his garment. Mark writes in verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Can you imagine the moment of joy this woman had when she knew that I am at last healed? But this woman is not the only one who knows that she's been healed. Uh, Verse 30 tells us that Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. And so he turns around and he starts to ask, "Who, who touched my garments? Jesus, notice, wants to meet the person who's laid hold of him by faith. Jesus doesn't just want to dispense healing like a machine. He wants relationship. The disciples, they don't get it. They're like, Jesus, who didn't touch your garments, right? We're in the first century Israelite crowd. Everyone's touching everyone's garments. Look there in verse 33 and 34. It says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Notice that. We'll come back to that. 
and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, stop right there. At this woman, she has no daddy Jairus. There's no rich father on the scene advocating for her. She's got no money. In fact, she's a social outcast. But Jesus Christ, the man of compassion, calls this woman daughter. Christian, hear in that word the tender affection and compassion of Jesus for all who come to him in faith. Two individuals so far who've been commended for their faith as they come to Jesus for healing. Two individuals in Mark. The paralyzed man from chapter 2. Remember as his friends lower him through the roof? Do you remember what Mark says? He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The other person Our woman from this chapter, verse 34, what does it say? And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Christian, listen, when you come to Jesus in faith, he compassionately receives you as his son or daughter. He calls you daughter, sisters. He calls you son, brothers. He is disposed toward his children in personal compassion. In this passage, we see a compassionate Jesus. And what does this have to do with our fears? Well, think about it this way. When children wake up in the middle of the night and they're scared, what do they call for? Who do they call for? Right, when you were a child, did you wake up and say, help, competent adult, someone over the age of 18? Right, is that what you cried out as a scared little kid? It wasn't what I cried out. I cried out, mom, dad, right? Because in the moment of my fear, I needed a compassionate, powerful person to comfort me. Turns out we're not all that different than we were as children. Listen, when we are afraid, brothers and sisters, we need to know the personal compassion of the Christ who cares for us as his children. In this passage, we see a compassionate Jesus. Second thing we see about Jesus in our passage, this passage shows us a frustrating Jesus. This passage shows us a frustrating Jesus. Now, please understand, I am most certainly not saying that there is anything at all wrong with the Lord Jesus or anything that he has ever done or does. That would be blasphemous and false. What I am saying is that because we are weak, because we are frail, because we are finite, Oftentimes, we find the ways of the Lord Jesus to be frustrating. I'd imagine that's how Jairus felt when this woman with the bleeding issue interrupts the trip to save his daughter, right? Jairus' precious daughter is dying imminently, and Jesus, the only person who can help, is on his way to Jairus' house until he's interrupted, and he stops the train to look for someone who touched him, right? If you're Jairus, you're like, 
can we like resume the trip to save the girl who's dying here? Can we figure out who touched you later, maybe? And then once the woman with the bleeding comes forward, Mark says that she told Jesus the whole truth, he says in verse 33, right? That must have taken some time, right? As a synagogue ruler, Jairus was probably not used to waiting on social outcasts either, right? If you were Jairus, wouldn't you be tempted to be frustrated with Jesus for making him wait in the one circumstance of his life in which he actually could not wait? Right, Jairus is probably thinking to himself, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I wish Jesus would hurry up, but we're going to make it, we're going to make it, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. But then comes the news that the unthinkable has happened. Look there in verse 35. It says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Right, frustrating. That's too weak of a word. How could Jesus let this happen? How could God have taken this girl while Jesus was on the way to save her? Well, friend, if you've read the Bible very much, you'll know that this is so often how God rolls. Right, God frequently lets things get much worse than we would have preferred. In Genesis, when God promises to give Abraham a son, God waits until Abraham is in his 90s to give him that son. In the Gospel of John, when Lazarus is sick and Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, he waits until Lazarus dies to go see him. Jesus allows Mary and Martha to feel the terrible weight of his delay, to wrestle with the question implied in their statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think of the bleeding woman that Jesus has just healed. In God's good and wise and holy plan, she suffered for 12 years before Jesus healed her. Why? We don't know. We know that God's perfect plan is good and right and wise. It must have been frustrating for her. The God of the Bible knows that we will find this frustrating. Because in numerous places throughout the Bible, one of the things that God's people say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, How long, O oh Lord! I praise God we're allowed to pray that way, humbly and honestly. So please, please understand what I'm saying. If we are ever tempted to find fault with God, we may be certain that the fault rests with us, not with God. I am not saying that we have the right to be angry with God or any nonsense like that. What I am saying is that God's word indicates to us that at times, in our weakness and our sin, we will find God's ways to be frustrating. In this passage, we see a frustrating Jesus. That's not a fault in Jesus we need to bear with. It's a challenge to our weak faith. Well, how does understanding this help us when we're afraid? I think it's a little bit like when you board a plane. And before you take off, the captain gets on the speaker and says, folks, we're expecting a bit of turbulence in our flight from Montana to Washington. Why does he tell you beforehand that there's going to be turbulence? 
It's so that when the plane is shaking and the wings are making that creaking noise, you're not thinking that you're about to die. You're thinking, ah, this is the turbulence that he told me about. Friends, listen, the way that God deals with his people in Scripture teaches us to expect turbulence. Just because what we, fi- we find that what Jesus is doing f- is frustrating to us doesn't mean that we need to be afraid. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't in control. doesn't mean that Jesus is not full of compassion for us, just as we've seen. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not promised to work everything that we are going through for our eternal good. He has. He will. This passage shows us a compassionate Jesus. It shows us a frustrating Jesus. It's in this context that Mark holds out to us our third point this morning, a trustworthy Jesus. Mark shows us in the midst of our frustrations and our fears, a trustworthy Jesus. In verse 35, Jairus has just heard the most terrifying news a parent could ever hear. Your daughter is dead. Jairus must be absolutely reeling. His world is shattered. His hopes are smashed. His heart is broken. And in that very moment, Jesus interjects. Look there at verse 36. It says, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. This is amazing. In the moments after a tragedy, especially in the moments after a death, we understand that usually that's the time to weep with those who weep, probably in silence. If you say anything in that moment, it needs to be a, a prayer and a hug, right? It's usually not the time to issue exhortations. But in the face of the scariest thing that Jairus has ever encountered, Jesus says point blank to Jairus, hey, You can trust me with this. Do not fear, only believe. This man's world has been turned upside down. He's lost the precious treasure of his heart. The pain must be more than he can bear. And it's as though Jesus looks at him and says, listen, I got this. You can trust me even with this. Jesus does with Jairus exactly what he did earlier with his disciples on the storm, during the storm at sea. Jesus connects fear and faith. To the disciples, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? To Jairus, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Friends, if you've been asleep now, is a great time to wake up. This is the primary application of the passage. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It has the power to change how we go through life. When we are afraid, Jesus says to us, do not fear, only believe. In other words, when you are afraid, Jesus invites you to grab hold of him by faith, to understand, to believe, to internalize, to trust, to be convinced in your heart of hearts that Jesus is merciful and mighty even over this. 
So friend, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of health troubles? Are you afraid of other people? Are you afraid of your own sin and guilt? Are you afraid of failing? Are you afraid of some specific suffering on the horizon? Are you afraid you won't have enough money? Are you afraid of losing someone? Are you afraid for one of your children? Whatever you fear in compassion, in mercy, in tenderness, in love, Jesus says to you, do not fear, only believe. When you are afraid, Jesus calls you to direct your gaze to what you know to be true about him. Listen, I love Mark's gospel specifically. In Luke's account of this story, Luke records Jesus as saying, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Luke points out that Jesus tells this man exactly what's going to happen in his specific situation. Mark doesn't. Mark just directs our attention to Jesus himself. He just says, do not fear, only believe. In other words, trust me. Mark draws our attention to the fact that ultimately, Jesus doesn't call us to put our faith in some specific outcome of a situation down here on earth. Jesus calls us to put our faith in who he is and what he's like, what he's done for us. Jesus doesn't just tell us to trust him. He shows us that he is trustworthy as this story unfolds. Picking up there in verse 37, Mark writes this. He says, And he, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. I'd imagine that the rest of the disciples are doing crowd control as they escape, the four of them. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So in those days, people Uh, Grieving families would hire professional mourners to sort of stir up uh, an emotional atmosphere in which it was easier for the family to express uh, their grief. So people are weeping and wailing. It's quite a scene. In verse 39, Jesus says to these mourners, why are you making a commotion and weeping? He says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And now from the other gospels, it's very clear this child has in fact died. Jesus is using a metaphor. He's saying, now that he's come, this death is asleep. It's not permanent. It's something that he's come to wake her up from. The mourners don't get it. Verse 40 says they laugh at Jesus, but Jesus is undeterred. He enters the child's room. Peter and James and John and the little girl's parents follow. Mark says this in verses 41 and 42. He says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark says, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Are there any kids in the building this morning? Kids? Any kids? I see some kids here on the front row on the right. I see you kids. Any other kids? Kids, anyone, Andrew, mm, anyone 12 years old here today? Any, any 12-year-old kids here today? Anyone sort of kind of close to 12 years old? All right, well, listen, if you are under 12 years old, this is for you. 
Kids, listen, if you know Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of death. Because if you know Jesus, Jesus promises that even if you die, Jesus will raise you back to life. Just like Jesus raised this little girl back to life, just like Jesus rose back to life after he died to pay for our sins. Kids, listen, if you know Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of anything because Jesus is stronger than everything. He's promised to take care of you. There's nothing more important, kids, than knowing and trusting Jesus. That's really what these two women in this passage have in common is that Jesus gives them both their lives back. Jesus gives both of these women, the woman with the bleeding issue and this 12-year-old girl, their lives back. Commentators point out there are various textual links between this daughter of Jairus and the woman that Jesus calls daughter with the bleeding issue. Jairus' daughter is 12. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Both women get called daughter in the passage. Both are rescued by Jesus from otherwise totally helpless situations. And maybe most significantly, both of these women are delivered from the uncleanness of death by the touch of Jesus. So the young girl, her corpse would have been, by the law of Moses, unclean, ceremonially unclean. Because at the heart of the idea of uncleanness in the Old Testament is the idea of death. And that's why this woman's menstrual bleeding would have made her unclean. Because blood was a symbol of life. And so to lose blood was to lose life. So Jesus brings both of these women from the realm of uncleanness and death back into the realm of life. He literally gives them their lives back. And brothers and sisters, that's why this passage speaks to us today. All right, the ultimate reason that Jesus is trustworthy is that he is the giver of new, eternal, and indestructible life that no one and nothing can take away from you. These miracles, they point to the great miracle in which Jesus takes the uncleanness of our sin and the death that we have earned on himself as he dies on the cross and rises from the dead three days later in victory to give, to share his own eternal, indestructible life with all who will trust in him. Friends, Uh, If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, first let me just say we are delighted that you are here. We hope you feel welcome here. Friend, in love, let us tell you, if you don't know Jesus, it is rational to fear death. That is an entirely rational fear if you don't know Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died as a substitute and rose from the dead to give forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who would trust in him. Friend, if you have any questions about that, we would love to speak with you after the service about how the eternal life, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus gives can be yours. Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate reason that we can trust Jesus when we are afraid. Because not only is he full of compassion toward us, he is also mighty to give us indestructible life. 
He can give us a life that none of our fears can touch. Our passage shows us a trustworthy Jesus. One final thing that we need to see about Jesus uh, in this text, fourth and final thing that we see about Jesus, this, this passage shows us a compassionate Jesus, a frustrating Jesus, a trustworthy Jesus, and also shows us a fearsome Jesus. I've said that the main application of of our passage is that when we're afraid, Jesus calls us to trust him. I I do think that that's the main point of the two miracles that we looked at this morning. I also mentioned that these are miracles number three and four of sort of a larger section of miracles all about fear. Remember the calming of the storm, the casting out of legion, and then the bleeding woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter. I think if we zoom out and we look at all four of these miracles together for a moment, there's one more point uh, that Mark seems to be making. As I mentioned, all four of these stories revolve around scary situations, and they're, they're all pretty different. Uh, but there's one thing in common to all four of these stories that inspires great fear. I want us to see this in the text. When does Mark use the language of fear? in these four miracle stories. How about the first story in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41? In the calming of the storm, when does Mark say that the disciples are greatly afraid? Is it while the storm is raging and they think they're going to die and the boat is filling? No, that gets calmed in verse 39. Look there in verse 41, after the storm is calmed. What does it say there in verse 41 of chapter 4? It says, and they were filled with great fear. Why? And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When were the disciples afraid? They were afraid when they saw the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. How about the second story? When are the local people in Gerasene, I'm sorry, the people of the Gerasenes, when are the locals afraid? Is it when the demon guy is terrorizing their community? Well, probably. They were probably afraid then. But when does Mark mention that they became afraid? Uh, There in verse 15, after the man is clothed, civilized, demons cast out, sitting at Jesus' feet, then Mark says that they were afraid. And they asked Jesus to leave. When were the locals afraid? They were afraid when they saw the power and glory of Jesus Christ. How about our third story, the story of the bleeding woman? Was this woman afraid as she snuck through the crowd to get to Jesus to touch him? Probably, probably so. Mark doesn't say that, though. When does Mark say that this woman became afraid? Look there at verse 32. After she is healed, in verse 32, we're told, and Jesus looked around to see who had done it. This woman senses the gaze of the almighty Christ is scanning for her. And verse 33 says, the woman in fear and trembling came and fell down before him. Fear and trembling. You know who fears and trembles in the Bible? People who encounter God fear and tremble. That's the most common usage of that phrase in the Bible. When does this woman become afraid? when she encounters the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. What about our fourth story? Was Jairus afraid as his daughter was nearing death? Most certainly. 
Does Mark tell us that? When does Mark say that Jairus became afraid? There in verse 42, when Mark says, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. You know how that word gets translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament? Amazement? I'll give you a guess. It's fear. They were overcome with fear. Why? Because unlike Elijah in our Old Testament reading, who had to say, Lord, please heal this woman's son, Jesus does it himself. He grabs her hand. And so vivid is the memory in the mind of whoever's recording this that he records the words that Jesus says in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, and she gets up from the dead. And they're filled with fear because they've seen the power and the glory of Jesus. Do you understand Mark's point? What is the scariest thing in Mark chapters 4 and 5? It's Jesus Isn't this clearly the application that Mark wants us to make? That instead of going through life afraid of suffering and danger and death and Satan and illness, we should go through life in worshipful fear of Jesus Christ. Now understand me, not fear that Jesus would hurt those who belong to him. That fear is removed by his cross but a fear we should have that recognizes that he is the one with power over everything that we are tempted to fear. One commentator put it this way. He said, the only Jesus who can help in the face of death is one big enough to be scary. He says, Mark wants us to fill up all our fear capacity with a big view of Jesus. Friend, listen, the fear of Jesus is unlike any other fear that there is. It is a most wonderful fear that leads to life and joy and peace that stills and banishes all other fears. It is when we fear Jesus that we're able to hear his precious words to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Let me close with this. John, the Apostle John, was one of the three disciples who was present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Most scholars believe that that is the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. In our chapter, John glimpses a slice of the almighty glory of Jesus, and he's overcome with fear and amazement. Well, there was a day when John didn't just glimpse a slice of the glory of Jesus, but when he got a full IMAX view in a vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1. This is what John writes in Revelation chapter 1 about his vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. He says that he saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, a very priestly thing to wear. He says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, symbolizing perfect and infinite wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, representing the fact that he sees and perceives and judges and discerns all things with perfect holiness and purity. 
John says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His walk, his feet are entirely pure. John says his voice was like the roar of many waters. He says in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his, feet, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead in fear, right? Well, surely that means that the Christian life is one of just being terrified that Jesus is going to hurt you, right? No, look what happens next. John says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, the only Jesus big enough to help in the face of death is one big enough to be scary. Praise God that that Jesus says to us, do not fear, only believe. Let's pray for his help as we close. Father, we confess that our view of the Lord Jesus has been small. We confess that we have thought lightly of his power and his majesty and his glory. Lord, we have drawn little comfort from his compassion. Thank you, Lord, that to weak and fearful people, Jesus is overflowing in might and mercy to help and to save. God, I pray that you would teach us to trust in him when we're afraid. I pray that you would give us such a vision, both of his glory and of his grace, uh, that the joy and peace-filled fear of him would banish all our other fears. Lord, we ask that you would do this uh, for your glory and for our joy through Jesus Christ. Amen.